It is heartbreaking how many service members do not feel comfortable talking about what they're going through because they're terrified of A, not being able to go home or affecting their deployability, affecting their jobs, affecting their security clearance, all of those types of things, which is a very real issue within our military. Hello, this is Al Levin, the creator and host of The Depression Files. If you enjoy the podcast and have found value in the show, please check out my Patreon page. There, you'll be able to support me financially with as little as a dollar a month. Your support will help me offset the cost of the podcast hosting site, maintain and update my equipment, and support the amount of time that it takes in order to produce the show. You can find my Patreon page at patreon.com slash thedepressionfiles. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash thedepressionfiles. In addition, it would help me out greatly if you could take a minute to rate and review the show. Thank you for considering to support me in these ways. And now, to the show. Welcome to The Depression Files, an interview format show in which you'll hear stories of men who have struggled with depression and or other mental illnesses. In addition, you'll hear deep dive conversations with guest experts on various topics related to mental health. Topics such as depression and other mental illnesses, medication, suicide awareness and prevention, our current mental health system, and of course, the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that both sharing stories and educating people are ways to chip away at the stigma. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. This is Al Levin, your host. I'm really excited. Tonight on the line, we have Caitlin Yancey. Caitlin is a Navy veteran and the Associate Director of Governmental Affairs of the Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America, IAVA. Caitlin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Al. It's great to be here. Yeah, Caitlin, I'm, uh, you know, I want to start by apologizing. Somebody from the IAVA reached out to me and I was so excited um, because I have had a couple of veterans on the show and I have never spoken to somebody from a veterans organization. So this is fantastic. I know when they reached out, they were hoping to get on the air in October uh, when there was, you know, World Suicide Prevention Day and World Suicide Prevention Month, and it just didn't happen. But I'm so glad to have you on the show. I think this is an amazing topic. So thanks again for being here. Of course. Um, and again, yes, it is an extremely um, uh, important topic. It's IVA's number one top priority and has been for many years. So very happy to get into this today. Awesome. And I know you, like many people who are in the field of mental health, social workers, counselors, psychologists, psychiatrists, they all don't admit to it. And not that it's everybody, but I think there are quite a few people who are in this field because they've had their own struggles, their own challenges, and or family members. And there's some tight connection I have found oftentimes. And I know with you, you also have a history of some struggles with your mental health. And I'd love to, to start off there. I'm definitely happy, happy. I mean, I don't know that I would use happy, but uh, will, definitely willing to share. So I grew up um, the daughter of a woman who really struggled with her mental health just because of her past experiences. She struggled with some intense depression and anxiety. And I watched her through 
all of those struggles. And, you know, I think that growing up and seeing that I thought, well, I, I know what to look out for. I know the types of things that she's been through. I haven't been through any of that. So I should be, I should be safe, not realizing or even thinking that something terrible could happen to me. Um, my senior year of high school, I actually had my first boyfriend and ended up being sexually assaulted by him. And that, while was terrible, I thought that I could just move on. I joined the Navy. That was one of the biggest reasons that I joined the Navy was so that I didn't have to see him anymore. Um, married my husband after only knowing him for four months. Um, and you'd think that growing up, again, in a small town, um, in a very, um, while well, my mother did struggle with anxiety and depression, my family was very um, strict and put together. And um, I had a fairly happy childhood despite all of that. You'd think that I would have noticed some of those red flags, considering I watched my mother go through some things and make some um, quick and hasty decisions, but I didn't. So again, married after four months. Um, had a son, um, a beautiful son, and still hadn't dealt with any of my mental health issues, um, ignored the fact that I had any mental health issues. Um, so, so like in hindsight, could you see those issues? And, no. and I'm curious too, you, you kind of breezed past it, like a sexual assault, like that's a big deal. And in your mind, were you just like, okay, I'll stuff these down, these feelings down, no big deal. I will push through this. And then you mentioned joining the military. It sounds like that was your way to get out of town and to escape that whole situation and that person. It was, it was. And it was one of those things where I was forced to stuff it down. I was forced to um, not face it. I was unable uh, to escape the person that had assaulted me. Again, <laughs> Very um, weird situation, but he ended up dating my um, um, my roommate, and so there was no. And despite me asking and requesting and telling her that he was a bad person, he should not be here. Um, there was no way to escape him, so I made and, a choice. And you, had you shared the story with your family or anybody? No one knew. No one in my entire wow. life knew. So when I started. Um, again, I told you that I was married after four months, but that was not the only red flag. I, I went from being a very happy and smiley and I was voted most energetic of my high school class, that kind of person to dyeing my hair black and only listening to death metal music, which I still enjoy, but it was very opposite from me. And I wore bright orange pants and I was, um, labeled as emo. So I went from, you know, cardigans and, flowery shirts and, you know, the, the blunt, uh, uh, blunt bangs with a bob to just the complete opposite. So it, which is, which is really like a good kind of heads up for parents, right? When you see your teen or somebody and, and again, like listening to goth music or, or the heavy metal, whatever it was and, and dyeing your hair black in itself probably isn't an indicator but a huge change in personality, a huge change in your interests is probably a flag for anybody who wa is watching that happen with their child, or it could indicate something, probably well worth a conversation. Oh, and it was. And there were, there were several times that I was asked, that I, my mother asked me, what was wrong? What is going on? And I just said that my interests had changed. I was very adamant about, not, about no one knowing because... 
I, when I had dated him before I, I was a virgin. So I did not want anyone to know that someone had stolen my virginity for me. I did not give it away. I did not give it away. It was stolen. Right. And that was something I could not at that moment in time deal with. I, yeah. I could not concede. I had, I had let that happen. So I know now that I did not let that happen. It happened to me. But at that time, at that time, because I was so young, I was not able to deal with that. Right, right. And it, and it sounds like, and I would imagine this is probably pretty common, it sounds like you were dealing with a lot of shame around it. Like, oh. how did I let this happen? How did I let this happen? Why did this happen? And rather than this is a, a really mean, evil person who did something incredibly tragic and awful. Exactly. And growing up in a very faith-based world, I treasured that part of myself, like absolutely treasured. I held it as a gift. And so that made it, I think, even more, um, even more of a loss for myself because I mean, I wore the promise ring. I had all of those things. And so it was, it was definitely very difficult to deal with. And I didn't want my parents to know that that wasn't there anymore. I, I know now, and I should have known then that they would have never even said that I wasn't allowed to wear my promise ring anymore. I wasn't allowed to have any of that stuff because I did not lose anything. It wasn't like that. But again, when you're a teenager and you don't know how to process what you're going through, you don't think those things through. Yeah. Wow. How tragic and difficult that had to have been. Yes, it was. So I, I left. I joined the military. And again, red flag, got married after four months. Um, we are still married to get today. So somehow, 11 years later, we're still trucking along. And you're saying um, red flag just because you married so quickly? Yes, very, yes, very okay. quickly. Even and though it's, it's worked out great to this point. I, I mean, great is <laughs> subjective, I guess. It's not without a lot of work. I mean, yeah. marriage is work, yes. But when you only know someone for a very small amount of time, you don't get to know them. And right. then when you're married, people let down their guard and they show you some things that aren't good. And so my husband has his own struggles um, with mental health, which he's not as comfortable with me sharing all of those. So I won't. No problem. But I'm happy to talk um, about what we went through together, just not his personal stuff. But so we got married. Um, it was a good, it was, it was great. Um, we had our first son that was excellent and amazing. And then, um, towards the end of my military career, we found out that we were pregnant again. Uh, neither of us were expecting it. Honestly, that wasn't what we wanted. We wanted to wait a little bit longer until we were out of the military and we were settled with we were where we were moving, but that's not the way that it happened. And so the day after I told my entire family that we were pregnant, I went to the doctor for uh, the initial um, appointment in the military. They make you go with a lot of other people and you get like an informational video and all of this great stuff. Um, and while there, they take your blood again. And we found out that my levels were not what they were. And I found out that I was having my first miscarriage and it was not, I mean, it was, you have the, cho you have many choices when you're having a miscarriage, but if you've never been through one, you don't know how to make those choices. So you have the choice between surgery or just letting it happen naturally. And they really don't inform you how traumatic it'll be to let it happen naturally. 
So I went through that and again, still had not gone through any therapy or anything for what had happened to me before. My husband at this point did know. Um, he had been told, so he knew okay. what I had gone through before the military. Um, but when you're going through a miscarriage, you're not only dealing with those emotions, but you're dealing with the loss and the fluctuation of hormones. So I ended up having a mental breakdown in the middle of my living room because my husband went with some friends for dinner. He asked me if it was okay. I said yes. It was one of those situations where you expect your husband to read your mind. That's not an acceptable thing to expect. Right. Um, I did say yes and got mad because he left and had a breakdown in the middle of my living room with my son there. And it was just us by ourselves. And um, what did that look like when you say you had a breakdown? Um, I was screaming at the top of my lungs, crying, I was pulling out my hair, a lot of just craziness and thankfully I had actually done that because I call I was calling him and he wasn't answering <laughs> shamefully I had called him 50 times uh, and so when he actually picked up the phone he heard what was going on and he came right back home and he told me after I got calmed down which calming me down consisted of him wrapping his arms around me and just applying enough pressure to get me to stop screaming um right so that happened and then after a little bit of time of me actually catching my breath and coming to terms with what I had just done because my son was still awake um him being like you need therapy like you cannot ignore this for any longer you have to go talk to somebody and I still didn't want to like I just I was I knew what I had just done I mean Granted, my son was only a year and a half, but you never know the things that can affect your children at what ages. So I still didn't want to. And he looked at me. He goes, if you don't get therapy, we can't do this. He can't be here. So that was a wake up call for me. Wow. Yeah. Um, I did. I went to therapy. We went to he first went with me because I didn't want to go by myself. And that's that was the second person that I had ever told um, that I had been assaulted. Wow. And you told them right then and there the first session with your um, husband there? Person, because I'm not a very trusting person. Um, it took me, it took me, I think, six months into our marriage to tell my husband. And while it's interesting because I've known my parents my whole life and I only knew my husband for 10 months when I told him. Um, and he wasn't perfect, but there was something about him that made me know that I can tell you this and I'll be safe. I don't know if that makes sense. Right. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But I, I thought you had mentioned that you had just shared with your therapist when you went as well. And that yeah. was the second person. When I, when I finally told her. The first, uh, the first appointment that we had, I did not tell her about the assault first. We talked about my miscarriage. Okay. Um, and I told her that I had some other things that I also was dealing with, but I wasn't ready to share. Right. Um, so we worked through that loss. I felt like a failure again, like I had done something. I knew that I hadn't, but I did. I felt like I had done something and I felt like um, I had wished it. I didn't, uh, but there were definitely times in the beginning uh, months that I was like, I don't want another baby right now. My hands are full. Like I'm stressed. Like I love my job and I did. I had a great job in the military. I was Everyone in my um, shop or um, at FRC Oceana knew my name because I fixed priority one heads up displays 
And it was, it was great. Like I loved doing that. And when I was pregnant with my son, a lot of that wasn't happening because I was more tired and all of those types of things. So I didn't want to feel like that again. I wanted to keep going. Um, so it was, it was difficult. Um, but, um, I can't remember how many sessions it took me to tell her about my assault, but we worked through first the, uh, the, the miscarriage. And then I eventually was comfortable with telling her about my assault. And then we also worked through my mother, um, my, because as much as, I mean, I love my mother, her going through her, her things before she actually went to therapy. I mean, that put a lot on me. I had to learn to recognize when she was in a mood so that I could try and, I, don't, I always wanted to try and turn it around. And so that put a lot of stress on me. And so I learned so much in that initial therapy experience about how much of our lives just affect us and right. how if we don't work through those things, it just compounds. Um, Absolutely. Did she give you a diagnosis that you're aware of? Um, she diagnosed me with depression and anxiety at that time. Um, and I was actually put on Zoloft. Okay. She didn't go with the, the diagnosis of PTSD. And I'm just thinking of going through a miscarriage um, that that might, may constitute for some women. Um, not at that time. Um, I mean, it had, it was actually just happening. Like I had just finished okay. with that process. So I don't know that I would call it, uh, I don't know that she would have called it PTSD, but that's not, I mean, that's not what she told me, but she did tell me that I had severe depression and anxiety most likely caused, um, by not only the miscarriage, but, um, the compacting of my assaults and the guilt and additionally, um, the, my, my mother and all of the things that we went through with that. And did that surprise you when she gave you those diagnoses or did it kind of make sense to you? How were you feeling about that? I was angry <laughs> to be completely honest. I was very mad because I knew that my mother had those and I, w and I had fought so hard through all of my pain to not get those things, to not be like that. And I was so terrified that I would push that on my own son. Um, so I was, I was very mad. I was furious. I recognize now that that was just still me not wanting to come to terms with the fact that I was so affected. But yeah, that's, yeah, I was mad. <laughs> wow. Okay. And so the therapy continued and the medications continued? Yes, I didn't. I, I'm, I'm not on uh, medication anymore. Um, I, I was on it for, for about a year. Um, and then she wanted to see if I could come off just because, I mean, sometimes you need it for a while. And because I was going through hormonal fluctuations that can affect um, those levels in, in your body. So she wanted to see how I did. And I, I ended up doing fairly well. So um, and that was around the time also when we were about to move. So she was concerned about that aspect. Like, are you going to continue to need this because you're moving? That's a huge change. But we had worked through a lot of things and she felt like I was in a good enough place to see if I could uh, go off of that. And I haven't, you, I haven't utilized any, um, medication since. Okay. Awesome. Do you still see a therapist? Um, not currently, um, not at this moment in time, but I do use therapy as, as like a tune up, um, right. if going through some things, honestly, there, 
as, as I'm thinking through it right now, I just had, um, a son, um, and I had, um, so I told you about my first miscarriage. I've had in a total five miscarriages. Wow. Uh, and I also, my husband and I lost a baby at 22 weeks in, on January 6th, 2021. So while everyone, I, I understand January 6th and what it means for so many people working in this line of work and hearing January 6th as much as you do is just so difficult. Um, because for a lot of people, it is, you know, the insurrection and what happened on Capitol Hill and it's devastating. But while everyone was watching that on the news, I was in the hospital having to undergo surgery. So it, it is a very, it has a very different meaning, meaning for me. Um, so all that to say, um, I have been heavily considering getting back into therapy because we just had a ba our rainbow baby after losing our child um, two years ago this January. And amazingly, um, my our son, our rainbow baby, was born in like almost one, exactly one year after we lost our daughter. So, I mean, it, it helps, but it's definitely something that both both of us have been talking about going and um, and working through with a with a therapist. Right, right. Wow. Yeah, that's got to be difficult. That that date, like you said, January 6th pops up all the time. And if it's something you've been trying to work through and get past and then you continue to hear the date, um, I could imagine that's got to be challenging. It is. It is. I mean, it's considered her birthday, but it's not it's not a great birthday. Everyone. I mean, it's not a great birthday because we lost her, but it's also not a great birthday because it has a terrible meaning for everyone and everyone right. calls it by the date. So right. it's inescapable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so you served in the military for four years. Is that right? Mm hmm. And uh, now you are at, like I mentioned earlier in the show, you're the the associate director of governmental affairs of the Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America, the IAVA. Could you share just kind of in a nutshell what the IAVA does? So IAVA is the largest nonprofit organization dedicated to post 9-11 veterans. And while that's our spiel, we like to make it known that we serve veterans of all eras and all discharge statuses. So it doesn't matter who you are or when you served, um, anyone that is a U.S. veteran is able to be a member of IAVA. And that also includes military families. Um, and so what, what a membership to IAVA includes um, is there, I mean, there are a lot of opportunities. So we have what's called a, um, all-star advocacy program. So veterans and military families are able to apply if they're members and, um, apply for a, um, opportunity to tell their stories on Capitol Hill and tell why they're important and connect that to legislation that would, help whatever it is that they have, they have experienced. Um, additionally, IAVA offers something called the Quick Reaction Force, which is a comprehensive case management program 
in which um, if a veteran is dealing with um, maybe a mental health issue, maybe they're dealing with food insecurity, or they're, they're dealing with some veteran homelessness or um, a military family homelessness, um, any, anything under the sun that a veteran or a veteran family member is dealing with, they're able to call 1-855-91-RAPID and be in touch with a person immediately that can help direct them to services that would help them. So those are those are two of the pillars of IEVA. Um, finally, one of the biggest thing that, things that IEVA does, when which is what I do, is we advocate for policy on Capitol Hill that helps veterans, uh, service members, and military families. So what that looks like is we put out a survey every other year, and the things that our veterans tell us is important to them we look for legislation that communicates that. And then we go on the Hill and we say, hey, these, this is what our veterans need. These are the types of things that our veterans are experiencing. And this is how we fix it and garner support for, for those types of things. Wow. So a lot of lobbying at the yes. government. Yes. Okay. Fantastic. And is it, are, are there other veteran associations that that focus on particular wars like I was surprised to hear that the title of Iraq and Afghanistan veterans and I know you said you serve all veterans but that was new to me um well I mean we have the Vietnam veterans uh Vietnam veterans of America so that's another organization that I know of that addresses a specific a specific war um VFW and American Legion um they do serve veterans of all eras IVA was started because um, the founder Paul Rykoff saw 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 a gap when it came to the veterans coming home from Iraq and Afghanistan. A lot of them didn't feel that they fit in with the American Legion and the VFW posts. So um, there was this this gap and this opening for our generation of veterans. And so he saw that opening and he was like, you know what? Let's let's make them let's make them a place. Let's give them a place to go. Um, and again, yes, that is uh, that is our our um, what we what we say and who we are. But we we've never turned away a veteran that didn't serve in Iraq or Afghanistan. I I am a member and I did not deploy to Iraq and Afghanistan. So um, it's it's really important for us to to let veterans know that it doesn't matter who you yeah. are. Right. That's awesome. And I know, you know, looking at the website too, which you have, a, it's a pretty large comprehensive website. It's awesome. And it was interesting. They mentioned that they have fought for benefits for veterans who were exposed to toxic uh, chemicals from the burn pits. Mm -hmm. They've worked at reforming the VA, recognizing female veterans, um, improving educational benefits for mm -hmm. veterans. Uh, and so much more, increasing access to alternative therapies, which is all phenomenal. And of course, the one that, that I wanted to talk to and address tonight really is the fact that uh, the IAEA works at combating the crisis of veteran suicides, which has has been such a, a you know a huge issue to deal with and and only seems to be getting worse. I mean, it, it definitely is not where any of us want it to be. I mean, one veteran dying per day is is too many. Um, and we know that the majority of veterans that are dying by suicide 
are outside of the VA. And so that's, that's really important to us. The, the VA offers a completely different healthcare center than any other place. I mean, it's a whole health approach. So when you're going in for appointments, you're asking about things that you don't get asked about at a regular clinic. Um, and some people don't like that, but it, it does help if maybe you're asked a question that you weren't thinking about. If you're asked a mental health question, and maybe you weren't thinking even that you're dealing with something, but then they ask you and you're like, you know what? I am not doing so hot right now. Um, so that's, that's a big thing with IVA is trying to improve the VA and make improvements so that every veteran feels that the VA is a safe and good place um, for them. And what would you say about accessing the help for mental health services at the VA? Because that is one challenge that I've heard from some veterans that it's really been difficult to to finally get in and to, to work through all the paperwork and necessary pieces to actually start receiving the help. Oh, I mean, I completely agree that that is a huge barrier to care. I mean, there's we could talk barriers to care all day. Um, and the, the length of time just to get in is is unacceptable, especially when it comes to mental health. And we look at the fact that mental health affects the rest of our bodies too. So the longer we wait to treat mental health issues, the higher risk of there being physical issues because our mental health does affect our physical bodies as well. So that is an unacceptable thing. And so IVA has really been pushing on ensuring that VA is hiring and also hiring good physicians and not, I mean, not just hiring anybody, but making sure that they do the correct vetting. But it is known also that right now, especially in the mental, uh, in the medical field, hiring is not easy. It's the most competitive, competitive medical field that we have ever seen in this country. So that is another, another barrier is VA trying to combat that, improving their package, their benefits packages and what they can offer uh, providers so that they are in competition with the, with the other um, medical facilities. So you think that's the number one factor creating the lag between seeking out services and actually receiving them, the, the largest barriers, the number of medical professionals to provide that yeah. support? Yeah, it's staffing. Staffing okay. is the one of the biggest barriers right. for getting into the VA. Okay. And I'm curious about the number because I've seen different things published. You know, your website says 20 veterans and service members die every day by suicide. And I had read in the Military Times that was released by the VA in 2021 that the numbers could be as high as 44 veterans dying by suicide every day. And I know they're, they're, it's challenging to get an accurate number. I mean, even in the civilian population, they say there are lots of reasons that the numbers may be low. Um, a common one is overdose deaths. That Was it an accident or was it intentional? Or even uh, somebody goes off the side of a road, off of a cliff, and was that intentional or was it not? And sometimes they get forensic psychologists involved to figure out if there was a history and a past of suicidal ideation or mental health issues and so forth. But I'm wondering if you could speak to the numbers and the statistics and data a bit. 
so it's again, it's difficult to get that number because just like you said, there could be other factors. And so um, I did I did read that Military Times article. And it, I mean, it does not surprise me that it could be as high as 44. We stick with the number 20 as that is what VA puts out. Um, and again, 20 to 20, 44, the number is too high if it's higher than one. So even, even if we get a report next year that says that 18 veterans are dying per day by suicide, that's not going to change our efforts. That's not going to change what we're doing because until we see that we're not losing veterans to suicide, we're not going to stop momentum. And I would say that the other veteran service organizations feel, feel the same way. Yeah. I think that's a great point, right? Whether it's 20 or 44, 20 is way too many as it is. Mm -hmm. So 20 or 44, you're going to put all, uh, all your efforts into preventing it, hopefully. And I do think it's worth looking at trends, right? Like, are they downward trending, showing that some of the work and pieces that we're putting in place are supporting a decline in suicide or not, right? So I think that the trends could be helpful. I know the IAVA also put out a survey, and some of that data was pretty compelling. In 2014, I think the IAVA had stated that 22% of its veterans had uh, had known somebody who had died by suicide, and now it, in 2022, it jumped from 22% to 62% of veterans knowing somebody who had died by suicide, knowing somebody personally. Mm-hmm. And then also suicidal ideation since joining the military was at a, a number of 62%. Yes. And we have to, we have to kind of remember that these numbers, a 2014, we were not as large as we are now. We didn't have the numbers that we do now. And this survey was also done um, with the Institute of Veterans and Military Families out of Syracuse. So it had um, it had better met, it had really good metrics and things like that. And then additionally, when we look at how people have been affected by the pandemic, we are in a completely different world than we were three years ago. Um, right, right. I'm seeing that on a daily basis. The things that even myself, the things that I was able to do, it just in one week uh, before the pandemic, I'm feeling exhausted. If I have to do all of that in like two weeks, um, we get burnt out so much quicker. Um, that's not taking into account those that are experiencing food insecurity and those that have been isolated for so long. And I mean, we're humans. We need social interaction to thrive, a lot of us. Um, and then we look at the fact that so many were not able to um, seek mental health care services because a lot of um, physician and attention and all of those things going to the pandemic absolutely not being able to get in for appointments and those types of things so the numbers increasing as much as they did for our survey were they were heartbreaking for us but they were not surprising considering how heartbreaking the past couple of years have been right right there's another one more data point that I want to ask about and the question it was interesting to me like it 
stated, how prepared did you feel you were to navigate the healthcare and benefit system once you left the military? And 24%, so almost a quarter, stated that they were very unprepared. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if the IAVA is, is, you know, utilizing that data point because that's, that is pretty tragic, I think, if people are leaving and then they're at a loss for how do I even navigate this health benefits system? Um, I mean, it, again, that's, that is a number that we are, that we're tracking and paying attention to. And we bring up when we are speaking with, with VA and DOD, because the fact is, is that it's a failure on DOD and VA's part. I mean, we're hearing all the time about the electronic health record and the issues that that is going through. But if veterans were able to, I mean, go from a DOD medical facility and just walk over to a VA healthcare facility um, without having to fill out all the paperwork, without having to do all of those things, it would be so much easier for them, both like from the physical aspect, they're not going to have to fill out everything, but also the mental aspect. I mean, I can tell you, I don't personally utilize VA healthcare services. Um, I have great insurance. Um, and one of the reasons is because of some of the things that women have gone through at a VA medical center. And it's a lot easier for me to use my own personal health care. I mean, I went to enroll in the VA at one point. And I'm not going to lie. It was just a lot of paperwork and I did not want to do it. I was like, listen, I don't have time for all of this. I don't. So it doesn't, it does not surprise me that so many feel unprepared. They don't talk about it enough. Um, there should be somebody at TAPS, um, the uh, program that helps vet, uh, that helps service members when they're getting ready to leave um, the military. There should be someone at TAPS there to help a veteran or a service member enroll in VA healthcare while they are there. Right. Help through the process rather than telling them, okay, this is where it is. This is how you do it. Um, make sure that you take your full medical record with you. I mean, right. that's not, not helpful. Yeah. There were some questions related to, to guns that kind of surprised me a bit. And that was, you know, 68% of veterans own a firearm. And we know that that over half of all suicides involve a firearm. And it, it surprised me that overwhelmingly uh, veterans responded that, yes, they are for a background check, but they don't believe in banning assault rifles or high-capacity magazines. And I guess that's just sad for me personally to hear. You know, it was just recently that a, another assault rifle was used in a school shooting, and I'm an educator, so... That strikes my heart um, heavy, and uh, so I'm curious about that data and if that's surprising to you, and if the military veterans um, association is considering how those pieces could be addressed and how they impact suicide. Uh, so I will tell you that while this is a question that we ask so that we can gather data, um, it's not a topic that we push on either side for. Um, it's one of those topics that when it comes to um, advocacy, our members are not, they're not 100, like we like to advocate based on um, topics that our veterans are, are for or against. And so when it's one of these issues where it's a little more 
Um, it's, it's not 100% decided. It's not one that we, we get into as much. Okay. Uh, just because it's so political. I guess um, that's that's really kind of one of those things when it comes to this atmosphere. It's the way that our our organization has been. Right. Okay. I just, you know, one of the articles when I was preparing for this interview and, and thinking myself about suicides and guns involved in suicides and I read uh, in the Stanford Medicine magazine in June of 2020, men who owned handguns were eight times more likely to die by suicide than non-handgun owners. And women, this blew my mind, women who owned handguns were 35 times more likely than women who did not own handguns to die by suicide by handgun. Um, So it seems like a a significant issue. Mm -hmm. Um, So... My next uh, next question, I want to, you know, speaking about suicides, the VA, the challenges of, of getting care in the VA, some of the paperwork we talked about, the lack of staffing. In April of 2019, there were three veterans that had died by suicide, by gunshot, at VA facilities within a five-day period. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering how IAVA reacted to that and what what types of steps were taken and is there a belief that that these suicides were trying to send a message as a part of their their dying by suicide I don't know that necessarily they were trying to send a message I believe if I'm not wrong that one of those um, veterans was at the Lewis Stokes VA Medical Center in Cleveland Ohio um, which is where I'm from though so, and I was actually attending Baldwin Wallace University at the time which is very close to Cleveland um, so that one hit very close to home um, it was very heartbreaking at that time I was working um, with an organization that was working to help um, specifically veterans going through not just physical issues, but also mental health issues. So we, we were very affected by uh, that loss. I don't know that it was to send a message, but oftentimes um, the power of suggestion is so, is so powerful. And so if someone is already struggling with something, if someone's already considering something and they see on the news, it happened, then that can tip them over the edge um, and and make that decision a little more clearer in their mind. And I was not with IEVA at that time, but I do know that that hit our organization very hard. Um, like you said, it was within a span of five days. At that time, IEVA was a strong supporter of a bill called the Commander John Scott Hannon Mental Health Care Improvement Act. And within that bill, there was a specific grant uh, program that gave grants to community programs that were aimed at helping veterans struggling with uh, mental health. And as we talked about earlier, two-thirds of the veterans who die by suicide are outside of the VA. And so our thought process was getting into the communities, um, especially, I mean, rural communities where you don't have a VA healthcare center as close, um, you can't utilize those services as easily. And so getting into the communities and having those programs that are specifically aimed at helping is a great way to reach those veterans that VA is struggling to reach. And then through that, there can be a warm handoff to VA so they can continue 
through through that process. So that was passed um, with um, in 2020. So that was a huge win for us. But um, that was one of the ways that we really responded and took action is pushing pushing that bill. Yeah, that's awesome. I have another question related to accessing care. And this was an interesting dilemma that I heard personally from a veteran. He's a veteran that I had on this show sharing his own story of challenges with mental health. And and I don't understand because I'm not a veteran. I have a, a huge amount of respect and admiration for veterans. Um, so I do want to say that, but I, I am not personally a veteran. His challenge, this was really interesting to me. So when he, and I mentioned that I'm not a veteran because I may get a little bit of this process incorrect, but it sounds like he was overseas. I believe he was in Iraq or it might have been Afghanistan. When he returned home, I believe the 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 service members go first to a particular state down south. I think he went to with his troop. And then from there, they go through kind of an, the beginning of an out take process for lack of a better word because I don't know what it's called when they're leaving the the mission at least that current mission or deployment and there he went through a series of questions and he had been warned by somebody you know don't tell them about any kind of mental health challenges you will be stuck here rather than being able to go home you know next week or whatever it was to see his family and be with them so he did lie and he told them, I'm totally fine, no mental health challenges at all. He did get home sooner than he would have, it sounds like, if that process is accurate. And then went to the VA to share that he was really struggling with mental health. And because he had answered differently earlier, he was denied services. Um, I, haven't, I haven't heard of that specifically. Um about that process preventing you from receiving services at the VA, that should that should never happen. I mean, um, IVA is a strong um, strong advocate for if a veteran doesn't matter your discharge status at all, but if a veteran um, is struggling with their mental health and they need to be able to be seen at at VA. Um, I but I from the service member side of things, it is. It is heartbreaking how many service members do not feel comfortable talking about what they're going through because they're terrified of, A, not being able to go home or affecting their deployability, affecting their jobs, affecting their security clearance, all of those types of things, which is a very real issue within our military. Um, right. So his his fears are not, were not, um, they weren't out of, they weren't crazy. I mean, that's a lot of people find that to be an issue. They talk about what they're going through. And the next thing you know, they're taken out of their command and put on a limited duty command while they are evaluated. And that's not, that doesn't help your mental health. <laughs> that doesn't help you. I mean, I understand wanting to make sure people are mission ready, but if you're telling someone that you're struggling with mental health, pulling them out from what is basically their second family, because our commands are our second family, pulling them out of their second family, making them feel like they did something wrong, isn't helping anybody. 
So, I mean, I don't, again, I don't know why that would have happened to him, but that's an, that's an interesting process that I, that I would like to look into a little more. And how yeah. long was this? I, I'm not sure, actually. Um, I can, cer- I will certainly reach out to him and put him in contact with IVA, IAVA and, or maybe you, um, I would love to do that, but it is a really interesting point that you bring up, right? And, and military is not the only profession, right? Where there are leaders in situations that they're concerned if they, they feel they can't reach out for help, it would show that there's a weakness or that they aren't capable of doing their job. So rather than reaching out for help, they stuff it down and, and a lot of times probably get worse and worse because they're trying to stuff down these challenges. So it's certainly not exclusive to the military field, but I could understand how challenging that would be. So many of these men seem so passionate about being deployed, right? That they don't want to risk a future deployment by saying, hey, I'm really struggling. Yet, mm-hmm. yet it makes so much sense if that people are struggling. I cannot imagine you know, the stories you read about warfare these days and, you know, their brain must just be, if you look at the, the, physi- the uh, physiological piece of it all, you know, their brain must be in high alert so much, just running mm-hmm. at such a high level of alertness with cortisol just flooding their brain continually. I would, I'm surprised that people are able to come through actually being in a, at, deployed in a war where they see battle and actually coming back without any kind of mental struggles would be is surprising to me. <laughs> I'm sure it probably happens. I don't think that they are. I think that some people are better at hiding it than others. But I mean, I, I, I think that everything that happens to us on a daily basis has the ability to affect us. And when you're seeing those types of things, I don't think it's possible for it not to affect you in any way. Um, I, I mean, I get it. Some people may be able to compartmentalize better than others, but I would say that there would be a huge benefit to everyone, you know, going, feeling safe, going uh, feeling safe and, um, empowered to, uh, utilize, uh, mental health care services after a deployment, because not only, I mean, even if you're going on a regular deployment, not even a combat deployment, you have a lot that you go through in that time. I mean, separation from your family. Some people don't get to see their children born. Um, some people lose family members while they're while they're deployed. And so all of those things affect us. And I think that it warrants a at least a thought of seeking mental health care services. You know, I didn't get to experience something that I would have. And that hurts. Maybe, maybe I, I might benefit from talking to someone. I mean, how much better do any of us feel after we talk about something that we are, that we're experiencing? I mean, I use my husband as my own personal therapist on a daily basis. I have a rough day at work. I go home and I just unload and it feels so much better. So how many service members would just benefit from, like I said, feeling empowered to seeking those services a post-deployment, no matter the deployment. Yeah, no, I totally agree. It seems almost like everybody should have an automatic, you know, 10 sessions confidential with a psychologist when you return. 
And that's yeah. just the norm. You're all going to your yeah. 10 sessions. You get to talk about whatever you want. It's a psychologist whatever. who's not hired by the military and you get to debrief and talk. That would be, that is <laughs> the perfect post-deployment situation right there. And not even post-deployment, like pre-separation and post-separation also, like being informed that, you know, hey, it's been six months since you left the military. I mean, a lot of veterans struggle after leaving the military. Feel free to give us a call if you if you want to, make, making it more personable. Feel free to give us a call if you want to talk. VA mental health care services are here for you. Those types of things would be so helpful. My, I mean, my transition out of the military, I, I felt just like so many others. You feel that loss of purpose, that the devastation from not having your second family around. And so, I mean, we lose so many veterans within that first year after separation. Um, so I can't imagine how helpful it would be to just know and to and to help reduce the stigma. It would be great to hear some of our our top leaders in the service utilizing mental health care services. I would never want them to feel like they have to share. Like right. if, they are comfortable with sharing, but as I mean, I I think that it's important for those of us who have come out the other side to to talk about it, reduce the stigma, let others know that it's okay. It's okay to talk about these things. It's okay to feel how you feel. I think that that would be so helpful to some that might be thinking about it, but just afraid of what others might think. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. I think if our leaders could talk about it comfortably without any kind of stigma and they could share their own personal stories and how they had struggled and like you said, come out on the other side and they're still in this high military position, yet they took some time that they needed, you know, that would be so awesome if it was open to that. And I'm glad you mentioned the stigma because I think the stigma just creates so many barriers even if the stigma is only in one's head but I believe there is definitely a stigma and especially not just a stigma but there are serious repercussions for seeking help sometimes that we talked about right it may impact your future deployments and so forth and I just want to reiterate I think you know I started this podcast by interviewing men who had dealt with depression and or other mental illnesses and I've talked a lot about the stigma and the stigma for black men because there's this big, you know, tough, machissimo type of attitude with Latino men and black men. And you have to be so tough and just buck up and deal with it. And I think that's got to be a huge piece of men in the military. I mean, what, yeah. what, what more image is there than, you know, all the, the military folks being so tough and so strong and how it, I could understand how it feels like a weakness. Like you, we talked a lot about the shame already, right? And, but I, I love, I always, always try to reiterate that it's not a weakness to reach out for help. Actually, reaching out for help is a very difficult thing. And it's actually the strong thing to do. But so there is this stigma. And I, I'm, so glad that the IAVA is working so hard at providing these services for for the men and women in the military, the veterans and and service members. The one last piece I want to touch on is I think the IAVA had a hand in helping roll out the 988 hotline. Yes. Sorry. 
I'm, I am loving this, um, this new implementation. Yes. So IEVA was, um, as far as we know, the only veteran service organization that was pushing hard on 988 for a long time. We saw, um, the, I mean, how many times I can't count how many times I was in a meeting, um, talking, talking about mental health and suicide prevention. And someone was like, pull out your phone and type in this super long number and make sure you have it on your favorites and your speed dial so that you can tell any veteran if they need it. And that's just a lot. And so if we're talking about a veteran who may be considering, um, considering something uh, that long of a number is not helpful at all. So this new, this new three digit number, it just simplifies things so much. And I mean, all you have to do is dial 988 and press one and you're able to get in touch with the veterans crisis line. Um, so this, we, we saw that, that we saw that this was actually the potential a couple years ago. And so, um, we, we watched it closely and saw that it was actually going to go somewhere within the energy and commerce um, community. And so my superior, uh, Tom Porter, he, you know, really just drove that, drove that vehicle and kept pushing and talking about how much this would impact veterans, how much this would help veterans if they're, if they're considering. And it was, it was included in the same um, passage as the Commander John Scott Hannon Mental Health Care Improvement Act. Um, we held a, pot, um, a Facebook Live a couple weeks ago with SAMHSA to talk about this, um, this passage and what it means. And, um, while we don't have a full, full breadth of data, they, they're very encouraged by how, how much easier this has been and how the states are really on board with rolling this out. Yeah, that's awesome. So, so glad to hear that you all had a large part in rolling it out. And just to be clear for listeners, this is not just for military veterans and service members, but this is also for the civilian population. 988 is the new suicide hotline, three digits only, 988. And I believe you can text to that number as well. Yes. Yes, yeah. you can. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Caitlin, I'd like to ask you one thing I ask every guest on the show is if somebody is listening right now and 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 struggling and we could be talking about a veteran a service member so it's more tightly knit to your community if they're listening to this show and they are struggling or they're they believe they're struggling maybe they're dealing with depression or they know they are what's what's your biggest piece of advice that you would give them um I would say that you're not alone. I mean, as someone who fought so hard against getting help for myself and thinking that I could just do it all by myself and I don't have to do it all by myself, um, you're, you're not alone. There are so many of us out there walking around every day that have been through terrible things and if they went to therapy willing or like me, went to therapy kicking and screaming, um, we came out the other side and feel so much better for it. And additionally, it's never it's never a bad time to start seeking mental health care services. I mean, we we take care of our cars and our houses more than we take care of our own bodies. And like I said earlier, 
mental health affects our physical body. Our physical body affects our mental health. It's a whole piece that has to be cared for. We can't just, you know, go to the doctor when we're sick and think that we're going to be okay. We have to care for it all. So don't feel, don't feel like there's something wrong with you if you want to reach out and never feel like it's a bad time to reach out. Even if you just want someone to talk to, even if you're like, you know what? I'm, I had, I haven't talked to my best friend. I don't feel like I can't talk to my best friend right now. Utilize mental health care services. They will listen to you. They will talk to you if that's all you want to do. It's never a bad time. Yeah. Awesome. Great pieces of advice there. And also just a reminder that, and maybe it's not a reminder. I'm not sure if we mentioned, but your website for the IAVA is just IAVA.org. Correct. Yes, and that's also how we are on every social media platform. Awesome, awesome. So I will make sure that's in the show notes. And Caitlin, I want to thank you so much. Uh, First of all, listeners probably didn't know this, but I didn't even realize until we got on the line tonight that you had your own struggles with mental health and you were really open to sharing. That's how this show began. I'm a big believer in sharing stories I think it helps people realize they are not alone, that they don't have to have shame around a mental illness, and and it helps get rid of the stigma and helps people reach out for the help they need. So thank you so much for being willing to share your own story, and thank you for the incredible work you're doing at IAVA. I just love to hear about all of the work you're all putting in to make sure that this suicide crisis that we're dealing with with military veterans and service members comes to an end. And thank you for having us. This is an important topic, obviously, not just to veterans, but to the community as a whole, especially as we're coming out of an unprecedented and um, heartbreaking pandemic. And we're trying to navigate what that looks like for us. So thank you. Thank you so much for allowing us to come on here and talk a little bit, not just about myself and my experiences, but also uh, what IEVA is doing on, on that front. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you again so much, and uh, make sure you stay healthy. Thank you. You as well. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave a rating and review. This is one small way that would help me out greatly. Please know that if you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the U.S., you can call, text, or chat 988 to connect with a trained crisis counselor or you can visit suicide.org slash suicide dash hotlines for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you would like to connect directly with me or have a topic to suggest, please reach out to me on Twitter at allevin18 or email me at thedepressionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.